think it's possible I drank too much green tea. I'm <laughs> feeling a little... Oh. <laughs> So tonight's talk is on uh, the four Brahma Viharas. I want to look at them as a kind of package deal and um, also talk about them with some sense of uh, some of the questions and issues you might be wondering about um, with going home and practicing the Brahma Viharas. So that is our plan for the evening. So uh, I hope you know what the four Brahma Viharas are by now. (laughs) We have metta or loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, and upeka, equanimity. Martin Aylward said, a teacher I believe from um, this... uh, Great Britain says the way he describes these four is the heart loves, the heart responds, the heart delights, and the heart allows. So that's a kind of shorthand for what these four Brahma Viharas are about. And I think of these, I sometimes call them the four flavors of love, and I think about them as a... um, a very balanced way of relating to the world and relating to other people. And they bring a quality of a heart that's strong and flexible and gentle and resilient, which is the kind of heart we all need. As you've noticed in meeting the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, the pleasure and pain, the joy and sorrow, we often try to protect our hearts with greed, aversion, and delusion. So we hope this way to have some kind of sense of control over the world, less vulnerability in this kind of wild world that we have taken birth in. But what we start to see as we explore these qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion in more detail is that they create a lot of separation. The protection, you could say separation is the price of the protection that they offer us, disconnection, um, separation, and even, I would say, loneliness. We've kind of lost our place in the world, lost our belonging here. And what I think of as metta in the Brahma Viharas is a, is a kind of, um, you could say, saner protection for the heart or a more connected protection, a protection that's guided by care and by joy and flexibility. And with this kind of protection for the heart, we're much more willing to be touched by life. We're much more willing to touch life. We feel like we have the strength and the resilience to really be present. I think without the qualities of love that it's it's quite difficult to be present in this world. Some of the truths that we uncover in our practice are are, um, destabilizing, shocking, um, concerning, (laughs) And if we don't have these qualities of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity as, as um, infused, if we're not infused with those, if our awareness isn't infused with those, uh, the journey can sometimes be a bit too austere. Much like a desert with the hot sun <laughs> beaming down on us. And you could say the Brahma Viharas are like the oasis that water our hearts and, and um, give them a, a different kind of strength, but a kind of strength that we can be fully embedded in this world.
So when we see that these protections, our usual protections of greed, hatred, and delusion are unsatisfying, are um, alienating, we start to slowly consider the possibility of love, compassion, joy. Joseph Goldstein said, love and compassion grow when we see that there are really no viable alternatives. (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr. said, I've decided to stick with love. Hatred is too great a burden to carry. So they're a great package, uh, these four. They work really well together. They balance each other, and they offer us a way to be with the wholeness of life, the whole, the joys, the sorrows. We have this general, uh, the, the general friendliness of the heart with the metta. And then we have the equanimity. These are, you could say, the metta and the equanimity bracket, the compassion and, and joy. So we have the, the metta, the um, basic warmth and tenderness of the heart. And then we have that balance with equanimity, the, the wide, spacious heart that can hold it all. And in the middle, we have compassion oriented towards suffering and joy oriented towards happiness. So they're a great template for how to connect with and care for ourselves, for others, and for life itself without going under. Greg referred to this this morning when um, somebody was talking to Deepama. She said she was asked whether um, she should be practicing mindfulness or loving kindness. Somebody asked her that. And Deepama said, from my experience, there's no difference. When you are fully loving, aren't you also mindful? When you are fully mindful, is this not also the essence of love? So in some ways, metta and, um, and mindfulness come together. They're both opening the heart, and they're both letting go of attachment, of clinging. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each one, and I'm, I'm, it's, I'm kind of going to just, I'm not going to have a comprehensive covering of each one because you've also already heard about them, but I'm just going to kind of point out different areas that might be um, of interest or challenge. So the first one, metta, basic friendliness, basic warmth and tenderness, sometimes translated as unconditional goodwill. You can find the word that resonates for you, sometimes just the absence of ill will. And as I said when I introduced this the first week, we really want to um, develop all of these Brahma-viharas as, as a kind of emotional truth, not an intellectual understanding, but a very visceral um, truth, an embodied truth. I told you about Happy Monk when he was asked, Happy Monk Miyatang Sayadaw, when he was asked about metta, he said, metta, metta, patting his body, very embodied, very visceral. One of the lovely things about metta is that it teaches us the benevolence of life. As you all know, we um, easily orient towards problems, towards what's not going well. (laughs) And metta orients towards what's good. So it's, it's a training of our minds to see the benevolence of life, to see our own benevolence, to see the benevolence of others. It's not denying that, that, that uh, 
people do bad things sometimes, but it's it's um, it's a, just an orient orienting orienting towards benevolence, so that we really understand that that is truth too. And with this kind of benevolence, as I said, it makes it, it um, when we start to see the benevolence in the world, or you could, it's not exactly seeing the benevolence in the world, it's, it's creating a benevolent world right here. And as we create this benevolent world right here, we're more willing to go deeper into the truth of reality. We trust life more or we trust ourselves more, we trust more. It makes the world friendlier. Metta makes the world friendlier. And of course, we're going to trust more in a friendly world. Somebody named Romaine Roland said, there is only one heroism in this world, to see the world as it is and to love it. To see this world as it is, right? Our Vipassana practice. And to love it. So metta is a guardian meditation. We mentioned that this morning too in Burma, the four guardian meditations. It's one of them. Because, as I said, there's this protection of the heart. It's it's a, a strength and flexibility, softness, inclusivity, nothing exiled. So it's interesting to notice when we um, start practicing, practicing how much of life is acceptable to you. My teacher Michelle used to say when she started practice, 95% of life was unacceptable to her. <laughs> And that might not be so different than a, a lot of us, especially as aversive types. <laughs> but how much of life is acceptable to us? With metta, um, we're increasing the percentage of life that's acceptable to us. Nothing exiled, everything included. I love this uh, story from um, Lynn Jensen, a, a Zen teacher I've, I've mentioned before from his book, Deep Down Things. And uh, he, yeah, he's Zen, so some of this language is a little zen <laughs> Like the Bodhisattva vow. <laughs> a few years after I undertook Buddhist practice, I took the four Bodhisattva vows, the first of which is, though beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. All beings, I asked. People, birds, trees, stones. All beings, I was told. How, I asked, do I save all beings? The answer, by letting them in. Though I didn't quite grasp the implication of it at the time, in taking the vow to save all beings, I'd committed myself not only to save my family, friends, and the checkout clerk at the grocery store, but my supposed enemies as well, all the people I most feared and disliked in the world. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. That's metta, the practice of total inclusion. How do I save all beings? By letting them in. So we're letting ourselves be touched by all beings, all life with kindness. Uh, Phil Shepard, I'm not sure, I don't know if he's like exactly a philosopher or biologist, I'm not sure, but he said, to be present in the world means making room for the world to be present in you. The practice of total inclusion. To be present in the world means making room for the world to be present in you.
So the deepening of metta is a realization that it's challenging to live with an open heart in the kind of universe we've taken birth in, this kind of universe that's not under our control, that changes continually, that has many different kinds of joy and sorrow. So this is a huge existential question we come up with when cultivating the open heart. What do we do about the fact that people are uncontrollable? What do we do about the fact that things keep changing? And that the people we wish to be happy and peaceful aren't always happy and peaceful. How do we keep loving, given that truth? I think it was Rilke who said, it's a great undertaking to learn to love just one person. challenging. Somebody recommended that you should start with a rock, that they're easier. You should carry a rock around and practice loving it. (laughs) People are pretty complicated. What does it mean to love? It's the same as the question um, I said yesterday in the Reflection, what does it mean to give? What does it mean to love? This question can keep us busy for years, a whole lifetime, a number of lifetimes. So if you don't quite understand it yet, that's okay. What does it mean to love? We intend to be open-hearted, and then our feral heart comes out with greed, hatred, and delusion, (laughs) self-centeredness. So we try to tame these hearts. Over time, we tame them. We teach them that it's okay to be tender. And we notice how um, our love is uh, so often conditional. Sometimes metta is called unconditional love. And when we're practicing it, we come across conditioned love. All the ways, I'll love you if. I'll love you if you always wash the dishes. (laughs) I'll love you if you love me back. I'll love you, but you must be happy. I can't bear it if you're not happy. I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember the name of this. Almost senior, you know. (laughs) A few more months. (laughs) I can't, um, what's her name? It'll come to me at some point. (laughs) Annie Lamott, there we go. She has, um, in one of her books, she she talks about a, a, a spiritual teacher that she worked with named David. She says, When David insists you are fine exactly the way you are, you find yourself almost believing him. When he talks about unconditional love, he gives you a new lease on life because the way he explains it, you may for the first time believe that even you could taste of this. As he explains it, in the church of 80% sincerity, everyone has come to understand that unconditional love is a reality but with a shelf life of about 8 to 10 seconds. Instead of beating yourself up when you feel it only fleetingly, you should savor those moments when they appear. As David puts it, we might say to our beloved, Honey, I've been having these feelings of unconditional love for you for the last 8 to 10 seconds. (laughs) Or, darling, I'll love you till the very end of dinner. (laughs) What I love about that is it's like, relax. (laughs) Right, relax and um, enjoy the exploration. And as as he said, when we have moments where we 
understand a little bit more of this kind of open-hearted love, appreciate them. And then when we have moments where that's not happening, appreciate that, because that's what you learn. That's where you learn. That's where we learn. So with the first three Brahma-viharas of metta, karuna, and mudita, it's really important that the last one, equanimity, is um, embedded within them, you could say, or on, or, uh, forms the foundation of them. They each need equanimity to be fully developed and strong. And so with the, with the um, quality of metta, the equanimity is the non-attachment. It's the open heart. So we see the ways the metta is conditional, self-centered, stressful. Anytime there's stress in love, you know that there's attachment happening, attachment or control. And the equanimity is the ability to be with things as they are and to let others be who they are, to let go of controlling as our way to love. So there is, um, we, we get a little tricked because there is this word attachment that we use sometimes when we talk about relationships, and there is what you could call healthy attachment, and that might look more like commitment, consistency with somebody, being there for them, being with them. The, the attachment that's um, what you could say the unhealthy attachment, the Buddha sense of the word attachment is when, is when the love becomes some kind of control, when it, when it closes down. So I'm really interested in this with my partner. I, we've been together 22 years, and I feel like I'm still exploring what it means to love him. And I notice that when, um, like I notice sometimes when I want to control him, especially around how fast he rides his bike down the hill, <laughs> he likes to come back and report that he rode his bike down the hill 55 miles per hour. I don't like to hear about that. <laughs> or what he eats, right? And so, like, when I, want, when I find myself wanting to, like, you know, when this starts entering, it's like, Rebecca, what's going on? And then I come back to myself, and it's like, oh, oh, I don't want him to die. It's my own feelings, then, right, that I have to work with, my attachment in that form. And of course, this doesn't mean that we're just, um, um, when we say that we accept somebody as they are or we let them be as they are, it doesn't mean that you don't negotiate like basic agreements in a relationship. It doesn't mean that we're doormats. You know, he still does the shopping and, and the dishes and I do the cooking. <laughs> and it's going to, you know, we work it out together. So it doesn't mean that, oh, you know, they leave their clothes around all over the house dirty and, and you just say, oh. You know, so so it's not a, a negating that we work things out with people, but it's like when does it when does it get like that? And real love is when we cherish people without illusions by them. What's really interesting to watch for me is over the years. how I actually um, at times still get surprised about who he is. It's like you see somebody more and more clearly over the years as you get, we let go of this. When this is there, we're actually seeing our projections of somebody. We're seeing what we want them to be. It's the same as our Vipassana practice. When there's grasping in our Vipassana practice, we're not seeing clearly what's there. Because the grasping distorts. And it's the same when we love somebody. The grasping distorts our, our vision of who they are. 
I just finished um, reading the novel uh, by Todd Nahasi Coates, the, his new, new only novel, but new novel, um, called The Water Dancer. It's a beautiful novel. Um, the, the main story, don't worry, there won't be any spoiler alert. I spoil, you know, I won't spoil it. <laughs> but the main story is um, of a young man, a young enslaved man, uh, telling kind of about, about slavery from the inside, <laughs> from the this, this enslaved person's perspective. But there's also this love story um, between him, Hiram, and Sophia, and it's it's fascinating because through the book he actually sees her more and more clearly, and he recognizes that at the beginning of his love for her that he did not actually see her, that he saw his wishes, <laughs> he saw what he wanted, he saw his needs, he saw um, his ideas of who she was. And over the novel, he, um, he becomes more and more mature in his love for her and realizes um, that, that she's a separate person. There's the equanimity part of love. He realizes that she's a separate person with her own needs, her own wants, her own desires, her own plans, and that he can't um, own her. So he develops this mature love. And she becomes more and more into, into focus for him as he drops, you know, success keeps dropping the, the attachment to really see her. What we ultimately see is that love has no guarantees. It's a risk that we take to be fully alive. And this mature love is about a deeper and deeper release of clinging. So with metta, we create a kind of um, world that is friendlier, and it's very it's very portable. It's great to take out into the world. Um, I love to practice metta, um, airports, traffic jams, standing in line, and also any time that. Um, we're experiencing ill will or judgment or challenge with a person, we can just drop in a single phrase. May you be happy. We might not even believe it, but it breaks the momentum, right, of the judgment or the ill will. And each drop, each line, um, helps condition the mind towards friendliness. I was remembering as I was putting this talk together a number of years ago, I um, used to ride my bike on a road, and uh, there were these dogs. At one point, I would go by a house, and there were these dogs, and they would bark at me and kind of scare me, come towards the bike and scare me. And, and I got into, you know, I'd yell at them and, um, and uh, kind of get aggressive. And finally, one day, I started putting rocks in my pocket, and I was like, oh, no, I think we have to, <laughs> and that was like my sign. I think we have to find another way to deal with this. <laughs> and so I, um, the next time I went by, I, I stopped my bicycle. I put, I, I put the bike between me and the dogs. I, I, I was, um, as somebody said, uh, wasn't idiot compassion <laughs> or idiot meta. <laughs> I put the bike there, and I was like, look, you guys, we got to work this out. <laughs> I really want you to be happy, but you can't do this. You can't bark at me like this. So I talked to them for a few minutes. They were a little confused. <laughs> and they never barked at me again. <laughs> it was a great lesson.
Joseph um, Goldstein tells a story of, uh, it's it said that metta protects you, right? So he, he tells a story one time, he's going to somebody's house and there was this barking dog. He's like, I'll just beam, you know, the dog seemed a little on the vicious side, maybe. And he's like, I'll just beam the dog with metta, right? So he beamed the dog with metta as he's walking towards the house and the dog bit him. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you have to use your your good judgment too. We should move on. It's already eight o'clock. So compassion. It's the friendliness of metta turned towards suffering that quality of caring about suffering. So it responds to suffering with care rather than with aversion or denial. Compassion is a... um, Sometimes I think of it as like a bittersweet quality or it's kind of sometimes sweet, poignant... It's sweet because of the connection. And it's poignant because it's oriented towards suffering. It's poignant because it includes the fullness of the vulnerability of the human condition, which includes suffering. I think of um, compassion as having a number of different qualities to it. So first I think of it as having warmth. It tenderizes the heart. So that warmth of care. And then I think of Compassion as a very powerful quality of heart. It's a quality that doesn't crumble in the face of suffering. So it can have this kind of fierceness. We talked about this one morning. It can call forth a kind of courage to meet suffering. I won't be, I won't crumble in the face of this. I won't be crumbled. (laughs) And then another part of compassion to me is um, action. So we wish for um, someone to be free from suffering. And we respond. It has this response. It wants to do something. It does what it can. What does the situation call for? And then the last quality I feel that compassion has is a certain kind of lightness. This is the equanimity coming in. Ryokanda, um, Japanese poet, said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to hold all the suffering people in this floating world. There's that warmth, right, and connection, and yet there's something a little bit, there's some lightness in that too. This floating world. So the equanimity part of compassion is the heart that can still dance and laugh in the face of suffering that can... I think of um, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. I read this book a a number of years ago where they had this meeting um, together for a week. They were celebrating the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday. Apparently they're good friends and they don't get to spend a lot of time together. So reading this book, and um, I think the book was about joy. 
these two men are known as um, deeply compassionate individuals. They're leaders in their respective religions and known for their deep compassion. And yet, this book, they were... They were so joyful and so full of spunk <laughs> through the whole book. And um, that's the flavor of both of them. That's the lightness. They don't deny suffering. They connect with it. And yet, there's some quality. Our hearts become big enough to hold suffering without, you could say, being oppressed by it. So that's a big question with compassion is how do we have compassionate, caring hearts in the face of suffering without going under, basically, without getting overwhelmed by despair, by aversion, Somebody once asked the Dalai Lama, is is compassion painful? And he said, when you first connect with a person suffering, there is um, a moment where it's, you could say, a little painful. He said, but then when you rest in the compassion, it's sweet. It's not painful. And um, his interpreter, I think it was the same article I read this in the choiring Inquiring Mind, which is a magazine that used to exist. Um, his interpreter was talking about that, that um, about the, the need to recognize that actually when you are with somebody who is suffering, the need to recognize that they're a separate person, which kind of surprises us, right? We think of the Brahma Viharas as collapsing the boundaries and all. But, but what happens when we get overwhelmed or despairing is that we... Um, we've actually, you could say, collapsed into the other person's suffering or are experiencing what's sometimes called empathetic distress. That there's a lot of empathy, but empathy is not the same as compassion. It's a part of compassion, but it's not the same. And so that sometimes when we get overwhelmed by another's distress, we actually... We need I sometimes look at like how how much I'm going in and where I'm where I'm energetically meeting the the suffering. And if we're collapsing all the way in, then then that's too much. If we're too far away, we don't feel anything at all. But where's the, the sweet point where we connect with the suffering enough to call forth that quality that cares? and yet don't go under. I think it's a big question in the world today for, for many of us. How do we care about everything that's happening? Not to remind you. Um, <laughs> nothing new, don't worry. Um, <laughs> But how do we care when there's so much suffering that we're seeing on so many levels? How big can the heart get? I often think of it as like more suffering. Heart has to know how to get bigger and bigger and bigger. To hold it. The other thing that helps when there's a lot of suffering and and trying to maintain balance is to remember the third Brahma-vihara, mudita, appreciative joy. So with this um, Brahma-vihara, we connect with the happiness and the success and the joy in others' lives and and in this world in general is a, a way we can expand it. We remember that life just isn't suffering, just suffering. It also there's joy. 
can bring a, a balance to the to the sorrow. Zigar Kontul Rinpoche calls it rejoicement therapy. The Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness. The Dalai Lama said it increases our chances for happiness seven billion to one. <laughs> if we can appreciate and and, and um, celebrate other people's joy and success. There's so many more opportunities to be happy. Somebody wrote a question about um, doing mudita for somebody you envy. And traditionally, mudita is an antidote for, for envy, for the kind of stingy heart. I had a friend who did um, mudita for, for a number of weeks as just her practice, and she was talking about how it went for her, and she goes, this question just kept coming up for me. What about me? What about me? <laughs> I loved her honesty. When we see other people's joy and success, that's what can come up for us, is what about me? Do I have enough? Do I have what I need? So if we want to do mudita for somebody who, of whom we're envious, we probably shouldn't start with them. Because as you know, with all the Brahma Viharas, and what we've mostly focused on in the last six weeks, is on um, is starting easy. Because we want to um, learn what the quality is. We want to train the heart in the quality. And if we start too hard, we just get the gunk. <laughs> we just get the, the, the obstacles in the heart, right? Or envy in this case. But after we're familiar with that quality and we, and we start to know how it feels, how it feels to be glad for somebody else's success... Then we can see. Can we try it with somebody for whom we have envy? For whom we feel envy? Sometimes it requires us to take the journey through envy. To actually feel it and understand it. And understand the layering. Usually under envy there's, there's other things going on. <laughs> And what happens with time is that um, you could say we, we develop a more generous heart, one that's not stingy, one that um, enjoys and feels glad when others have success, when others have um, wonderful things happen. So, so we teach our own heart a kind of abundance and fullness and generosity through this practice. So mudita lessens the forces of jealousy and stinginess in the mind-heart and strengthens the forces of gratitude and contentment and generosity. I was thinking about the fact that um, I'm giving this talk on another holiday in the United States called Black Friday, which is traditionally the biggest shopping day of the year. And uh, everybody's supposed to go out and get tons of things. And... um, Mudita is an antidote to Black Friday. (laughs) It's about contentment and about um, appreciating what we have.
There's another way that we often practice mudita or talk about it that's not so traditional but is helpful for many of us. And um, I think it's sometimes explained and might have been explained to you as, as, as mudita for ourselves. And it's really about um, appreciating the joy and the beauty that, that surrounds us, appreciating the abundance of life, you could say, that, that surrounds us. So noticing what's beautiful and pleasant. Again, it's a training of the mind. Instead of going towards what's unpleasant and difficult, going towards what's pleasant. And with meditation, we, our, our senses become more refined. We actually become uh, more able to enjoy this kind of happiness, you could say. The joy of, of looking at a flower the joy of listening to snowfall. Kempo Rinpoche was once asked to tell a story about uh, the many three-year retreats he had done. He said two sentences telling about the happiness he felt one time watching the sunrise. There's so much beauty in this world that's accessible when we pay attention. And this kind of attention helps us to feel happy and contented and alive and refreshed. I cultivate this a lot in my life, this kind of attention to the simple beauty that's present every day. Joanna Macy has a book called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. It's a very good book. And she talks about um, protecting our enthusiasm. I love that phrase, protecting our enthusiasm when we're doing social justice work or uh, work around um, the planetary, the climate crisis, work that's like a long-term project. She says it's so important to protect our enthusiasm. And the same thing with meditation. Meditation, nobody finished like this this retreat, right? Like finished their meditation, right? It's a long-term project. Um, How do we protect our enthusiasm? It's like sustainable agriculture. What's a sustainable meditation? What does the soil need to be rich? It's not very American. It's (laughs) anti-American to be sustainable. (laughs) What protects our enthusiasm? What makes our hearts strong? I watch the birds on the bird feeder every morning. That makes my heart strong. It protects my enthusiasm. In the summer, I pick wildflowers, put them on the table. My partner today sent me this beautiful picture. He loves to split wood, so he split wood all day, and he (laughs) sent me this beautiful picture of of the wood pile. All stacked up. I loved it. And I didn't really make this up either. We didn't make this up. I told you about the, the, the book called the Vasudhi Maga, The Path of Purification, and how the Buddha said that during times of lots of aversion or suffering, we want a beautiful meditation space. We want um, to surround ourselves with as much beauty as we can to help soothe and calm the system. So mudita keeps us from sinking and drowning in the depth and breadth of suffering that's present in this world. It gives us solace so that we are not overwhelmed. It protects us from despair. And when there's a lot of dukkha, I recommend this kind of joy, developing this kind of joy. We can make it a practice.
the equanimity part of mudita is, can we delight in others' happiness knowing that it's impermanent? Can we enjoy the beautiful flowers on the table knowing that they're going to wither and die? So that question can keep us busy for years also. How to appreciate joy, beauty, and happiness even though it'll change. I think mudita can also stretch our tolerance for what other people, um, how other people may find happiness. Like we may not always agree with them. Remember, a number of years ago, my godson was really into heavy metal music, and um, I didn't really appreciate heavy metal heavy metal music. But I tried to appreciate that he appreciated it. And then I made this practice of of driving around when I was driving around to listen to heavy metal to um, like see like where I could appreciate it. And I actually got so I could appreciate the like raw energy of it. There's so much energy. Just appreciating that. (laughs) I was serious. (laughs) I I think he still likes heavy metal. I'm not sure. (laughs) So as long as people aren't harming others, we can appreciate uh, that they may have different ways of being happy. And then the last Brahma-vihara, equanimity, which I've already been talking about some, is um, supporting the other three, but also um, its own its own practice, its own um, Brahma-vihara. And this is um, the Brahma-vihara that's meant to release attachment to outcome, you could say, to things being the way we want them to be. So maybe with the other Brahma-viharas, we've been wishing for people to be happy and peaceful and free of suffering. We've been wishing for their um, success and joy to continue. And then this one's about really letting go. And I'm sure Greg talked about it this afternoon um, in detail. So I'll say a few more things. Um, I think of equanimity as a gift that we give ourselves and, and we give to others, um, the gift of um, not placing our demands upon reality, our demands upon other people. Some of the phrases that I use, I have a whole list of ones possibilities. There is, you heard the traditional one today, I'm sure. You are the owner of your karma. Your happiness and sorrow depend upon your actions and not my wishes for you. Now, for some of us that we might um, relate to that, especially if we come from a culture where we understand karma deeply. For some of us that might feel a little bit too um, austere, So there are other options. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Or one student shared with me today and said I could share. I surrender my demands on you. Or I care about this. I'm not in control. This is how... Things are. You get the feeling, right? It's a. I care about you and I understand that you have your own path to follow. I release you from my expectations and attachment. I entrust you to your life and respect you on your own journey. 
I release my attachment to how things are for you. I care about you and I cannot control your happiness and sorrow. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. Or simply, things are as they are. This is how it is right now. So equanimity calls on us to relax, controlling. Control equals attachment. And on many levels, it's looking at where um, control manifests in the mind, body, and heart. I mentioned to you that when I first started studying Qigong, that the first day's instruction was to relax the back of the knees. And how my mind went like, no way, we're not doing this. This is not okay. That's because that was a control pattern for me, or it's for, is for many people. It's like to have this kind of rigid posture. And to relax the back of my knees was to let go of control, controlling a bit. I've explored a lot about like letting go of attachment through Qigong, through the, the body and where the body holds on and where the body lets go. It's all the same system, body, heart, mind. (laughs) It happens every week, doesn't it? (laughs) I just want one more thing that's really important. We have to understand, and I'm sure it was mentioned today, but we have to understand that equanimity is not detachment. It's not indifference. Indifference is easier than equanimity. The kind of pulling back. Indifference pulls back. Detachment pulls back. Equanimity stays in the game. (laughs) It's there. It's connected. And yet it's open-hearted. It's letting go of control or attachment. And out of the place of... um, It's like that deep love of the world. We're back to the mature love of the world, loving the world um, without obscuring our vision of what's happening with our demands. So when we've let go of the demands and we're still there, we're still loving the world, we can actually see more clearly what is the best way to respond, what is the best way to engage with whatever the situation is at hand. Where can we give? What is the world asking of us? And so the equanimity is the caring and the letting go, the loving and the letting go together, the responsiveness and the letting go of results. It's following the heart's deepest intentions, the heart's deepest passion with clarity and with wisdom. So the four together, the four Brahma-viharas together um, really are about this mature love for the world, this inclusive love for the world, this wise love for the world, this sane love for the world, this resilient love for this world. I wish wish you much um, 
what do I wish you, fun? <laughs> that was the word that came to mind. I wish you much fun in exploring these four flavors in your practice and in your lives. Taking up that question, what is love? Letting it be an active inquiry. Sit for a minute. Taking what's useful and letting the rest float away. Feeling this body sitting here, breathing, perhaps loving. the whole world be blessed by our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.